definitely human. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to The Bunker, episode one. If you're new to the show, this is a good place to start. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sending us 500 liters of moderately clean water a day. Or just rate and review The Bunker on iTunes. That would be great, too. Humankind. See how they bend and shape the Earth. Marching forward on the conveyor belt of time. Building their great cities. Remaking the planet in their own image. See them climb. See them touch the face of God. And stumble. And fall. Their cities all collapse inwards like rotting carcasses. Only bones are left. It was bound to happen sooner or later. and shine. It's Monday, 20 to 6, winter, 24, 14, and the weather outside is balmy. My name is David. My name is also David. And my name is Tom, and you're listening to The Bunker, humanity's best and only remaining radio broadcast. It's the sound of the underground. The coolest show this side of the equator. Oh yeah, the hottest frequency since the cataclysm. The best thing since Cambridge. Richard Peace, a love to the new world. Okay, that's enough of that. Uh, Dave, how's the traffic looking out there? Well, wastelanders heading south for the annual migration will want to avoid Sector 13 as a colony of mutants have moved into St. Churchill's Primary School, no doubt enticed by the smell of coloured chalk and poster paint. We'd like to remind you all that while mutants are people too, they do enjoy the taste of man flesh, and so are best avoided if at all possible. Coming up on today's show, a discussion about beginnings of things, an interview with award-winning animator Mikey Please, a song about cats, and a short story about birds. Plus, tea and biscuits! Alright, and an introduction to Verisimilitude. But first, a message from our sponsors. Remember when data systems were kept on computers? Hundreds of years of information stored on machines that silently plotted our destruction. Accessing that information took time, and it wasn't easy. Now, all that has changed. We are Happiness Inc., a leader in globalized corporate entities. 
with a proven track record since 2019, Happiness Inc. revolutionized the way people see the world around them, predominantly by making sure they didn't. We believe that augmented reality simply isn't going far enough. What if we transpose the fantasy of films and video games into our physical environment? Wouldn't that make everything better? Yes. Yes, it would. The future of information storage lies not in our machines, but in the actual world around us. A fictionalized, better world that we have created for you. So join us. There are literally millions of new job opportunities at Happiness Inc. as we strive to build a robot army that can eventually fill those same positions. Happiness Inc. It's reality, but better. I never get tired of those old adverts. They fill me with a warm, fuzzy feeling inside as I recall the cheery, rose-tinted glory days of our civilization, full of optimism and infinite possibilities before the world became an endless desert, where ruined skyscrapers still stand like vast, dark monoliths, cruel reminders of humanity's ultimate failure and my own broken hopes and dreams. Now, Tom, I see you've brought something in for today's show and tell. That's right, David. This... Is a kazoo. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Uh, for everyone listening, Tom has just put his mouth to a hole in the top of the kazoo and hummed into it. That really is great. Uh, so, what practical purposes does the kazoo serve for the nomadic tribes and lone hunter-gatherers that live in the wasteland above us? Well, David, I'm glad you asked. The kazoo is a musical instrument, or toy, mm-hmm. um, that may be used to lift the spirits of the individual playing it uh, or their companions. Oh, I see. Good, good. It can also be used to lull your enemies into a false sense of security. Ah, A great tip from Tom there, listeners. Uh, So look out for a kazoo on your next scavenger hunt. Uh, It kind of looks like a small metal pipe, similar to what your tribe's shaman might use to uh, smoke his special flowers. So, Dave, uh, what have you brought in for show and tell? Well, I've brought in this. What? What is that? Uh, This is a letter from a girl I knew. A girl that, that I was in love with. This is the last letter she ever sent me, so I've held on to it. I've kept it all these years. Uh, could I have a look at that? Yeah, sure. Ta. Huh. I told you before, Dave, your past has no place in the bunker. And that segues neatly into today's topic, the past, and, more specifically, speaking and writing. <laughs> There's a couple things I want to say about speaking. One, the thing about sound is that it's physical. When I speak my words with my voice, they vibe out to you and touch you, vibrating into you and moving you. Two, sound is ethereal. It's in the air. It moves out to you, touches you, and then it moves on. There and then gone. Leaving just a sonic trace, a memory, thought, or story. That then resides inside you. Maybe to be spoken again. Three. Sound dissipates, but never disappears. It gets absorbed into stuff, but it's all here, still in the universe. The sound waves spoken by our foremothers and far-off cousins are still here, still vibrating out into the universe. Because of the ethereal quality of speaking, it's hard to know when it started. But using elaborate systems of measuring phonemic diversity, we've got some estimates that about 350,000 years ago, we started talking in Africa. We started making sounds with each other, playing with this magical internal instrument, releasing ourselves from ourselves. 
And we kept doing it until our sounds gathered meanings, and those meanings got complicated, and those complications needed new sounds, and on and on till we were talking. Then around 3000 BCE, we started writing. So let me say some things about writing. One, writing lasts longer. Depending on what materials you're using and what the weather's like, your writing might last hundreds or thousands of years. Two, writing is a reminder. It's going to last, so it's a tool for memory. Before writing, we spoke and sang our stories, held our histories in our heads. When we write them down, there's a shift for sure. Our shared stories get privatized, owned, authored. What I'm wondering is, which really lasts longer? The written word can last for thousands and thousands of years, but the spoken word is still vibing out into the universe forever. You can burn a paper, but you can't burn a frequency. So is it better to bounce into the universe for eternity, or to live on a page, get held, get emailed, get stacked, get lost? And here's a funny thing. These words, these ones here, that I'm speaking, they're all of these things. I wrote them down on a computer, and now I'm reading them in my closet, into a microphone, and from here they're going to go back to the computer, to your computer, but they're also leaping out of that closet, riding their waves out of my apartment, out of Halifax, off the coast, and past the atmosphere. You're hearing them now. We're connecting, you and me, but I'm also connecting to infinity. Don't forget, coming up later, we've got a story, a song, an interview, and more importantly, tea and biscuits. Woohoo! Tea and biscuits! Ah, yeah! Yes, it's our favourite part of the day. But first... When it comes to health and social care, we all want the best money can buy, especially when it's the really important things in life, like cosmetic surgery. Tenofra is the leading brand of anti-aging products, from stomach transplants for you to face transplants for your dog. Our latest beauty product, the Youth Pill, is positively flying off the shelves and it's not hard to see why. In our latest poll, 9 out of 10 shoppers agree that our Youth Pill, which helps to regrow dying cells and keep you looking young and beautiful, is worth every penny. The Youth Pill is easy to use. Simply pop two in your mouth every day and enjoy all the benefits of a younger body. As a side effect, the youth pill also eliminates the necessity of dying. That's handy, isn't it? Tenofra is the only brand that offers this fantastic product, so accept no substitutes. Order the youth pill now and get your first week free. This is the bunker. Coordinates, 51.5081 degrees north, 0.0878 degrees west. If you're out there, come and join us. We have a lifetime supply of sandwich spread. And remember, if you have any questions about wasteland survival or about today's topic, you can write to us. Full contact details at the end of the show. That's very generous of us, David. Well, we're always happy to share our wisdom. As the saying goes, give a man a fish and you feed him once. Teach a man to fish and you'll feed him a lifetime. Teach a fish to man, and he will blend into our society seamlessly, mimicking our customs, absorbing our cultures, unblinkingly watching our every move, until one day he returns to his kind in the inky darkness of the ocean to fill their heads with impossible dreams, so that they might become envious of our dominion over the land and seek to take it from us. I'm just found me a bingy old cat. I break them up and 
Quiet Marauder with their charming single, Stray Cats. Still to come, a short story read by Tim Dalling, an interview with Mikey Please, and of course, tea and biscuits! Yes, it's that time soon, but next up, something interesting from the edutainment vault. Enjoy and learn at the same time. Today's word is verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. V-E-R-I-S-I-M-I-L-I-T-U-D-E. Verisimilitude apart from being a long word that feels really nice to say, is about the appearance of reality or truth in a story. It is created and enhanced by a writer outlining certain parameters of a story's reality and then sticking to them. This is important because an audience needs to understand what is and isn't possible, so that they can suspend their disbelief and become immersed in the story. To use an example, at the very start of Terminator 2, was shown a future where robots are fighting a war with humans before being taken back to the present day, well, the 1990s. This does two things to foster the verisimilitude. One, we're shown that time is fluid. And two, we see that machines are very advanced and can fight humans. With this established, the audience can buy into the idea that a robot with an Austrian accent can be shot up by the LAPD and keep on going. In reality, that whole idea is absurd, but in the reality of Terminator 2, it's believable. If, however, the film had shown the Terminator running for political office in order to gain influence over the humans, then that would have been unbelievable in the context of the film, as it is never established that the machine has the aptitude for double-crossing and backstabbing necessary for politics. Verisimilitude doesn't just apply to stories set in fantastical worlds, though. Every story presents a certain view of reality and asks the audience to suspend their disbelief in some way, whether it's the fugitive escaping from right under the cops' noses or the young couple risking it all for love. These things may be unlikely in the real world, but if the writer does their job well and creates that verisimilitude, then we'll believe they can happen in the story. Did you hear something? A moth, maybe? My name is Katie. I'm trapped. I'm in some kind of... Some kind of animal graveyard. Or it's more like... Like a tomb. (coughs) But I'm not alone. I was being chased by these... They're in here with me. I don't know what to... Wait! My coordinates! Um, my coordinates are 51.4960 degrees north, 0.1764 degrees west. Please, if you're out there, if you can hear me. 
It's nearly time for tea and biscuits. Uh, but now a traditional Hebridean story performed by Tim Dowling. This is the Raven's Skull. The Raven's Skull A baby was born on a Scottish island. His father, who was chief of the clan, named him Seamus. His mother, who had come from a more remote island, much further west, said to her husband, On my island, it is said that if a baby's first drink of water is taken from the skull of a raven, then the child will have great wisdom. Well, the chief wanted to please his young wife, and so he went to the dark, steep cliffs on the north face of the island, where the black ravens tumbled and circled against the grey sky, and there by the water's edge at the foot of the cliffs, in amongst the rocks and the seaweed, he found a raven's skull. He took it home, washed it clean, filled it with fresh spring water and handed it to his wife. Thank you, she said. She was pleased. She picked up the baby, Seamus, and touched the edge of the skull to his lips. She tilted it, and as the water touched the baby's lips, his eyes opened. He drank the water, and it was good. The mother placed the skull by the window where it glowed white in the sunlight. Well, Seamus grew to be a fine, healthy boy, and he loved to roam all over the island. He explored every nook and cranny, he played in the fields and on the hills and by beaches and cliffs of the seashore. He loved it all. But his favourite thing was to lie looking up at the sky, listening to the sounds of the birds. And he grew a bit older, nearly a young man, and his mother called him one day. Seamus, come here. She took him into her bedchamber and she pointed to a small cage by her bedside. In the cage was a small bird, a linnet. Seamus, this bird is my most treasured possession. When I wake in the morning and hear its song, it fills my heart with joy. Now you must never, ever open the door of the cage. Do you promise? Yes, mother. Some time passed and one day the mother went into her bedchamber and the bird cage was empty and the door was open. Seamus, she cried. When Seamus arrived, she said, Did you open the door of the cage? Yes, mother. Why? It was the one thing I asked you not to do. I'm sorry, mother, but the bird was unhappy. Oh, you know the bird was unhappy. Next you'll tell me you can speak the language of the birds. Yes, mother, I can. She looked into the boy's eyes. He never lied. And then she noticed the raven's skull gleaming white by the window, and she knew the boy told the truth. Well, this was cause for great celebration. The chief ordered a great feast to be held. All the chiefs of the clans were invited to the island, and they gathered in the great hall. It was the tradition that the son of the chief would kneel and serve his father first. Seamus held a great plate with a salmon, and he knelt before his father and the other chiefs. His father spoke. Friends, we have invited you all here in celebration of our son Seamus and his great wisdom. He has learned the language of birds. Up in the rafters of the great hall, some sparrows chirruped and sang. Tell us, Seamus, what do those birds say? Seamus listened, but then he looked worried. I'd rather not say, Father, Please don't ask me. The chief frowned. Tell us, boy, you have this great skill. Tell us what the birds say. I'm sorry, father. I don't want to say. Please don't ask me. Everyone in the great hall was silent, waiting. I order you, Seamus. Tell us what the birds say. They say, One day you will kneel and serve me. A great cloud of anger erupted from the chief. 
How dare you shame me like this, boy, in front of all these people? Get out of here. Get out of my sight. Leave this place. I never want to see you ever again. Seamus ran from the hall, tears streaming down his face. He ran down to the harbour of the island where the boats were lined up. A trading boat was just setting off from the harbour. He called to the captain, Take me aboard. Wherever you're going, take me with you. I want to leave this place. I'm young, but I'm strong. I'll work hard. The captain let him aboard and they set sail. Seamus watched his island disappear in the darkness. Well, Seamus had played in small boats by the shore, but had never been out to the deep sea, and the great swell of the water made him sick as a dog. He retched over the side of the ship. The older crewmen laughed and poked fun at this green young lad. But as the days wore on, he grew used to the life. He worked hard and he was honest. They grew to respect him. But there was a sadness about the boy. In the evenings they'd stand gazing out to sea. It seemed as if the seabirds who followed the boat sought out Seamus. It was as if they called to him. But he turned his head away. Years passed and Seamus worked hard and grew to be a young man. And one day he felt a call inside him to see land. To feel the earth under his feet and see the trees and fields and he asked to be let off the boat at the next harbour. The captain was sad to lose him, but he agreed, and it was at the harbour of a great seaport city that Seamus stepped ashore. Thousands of people were busy unpacking cargo. Everywhere people were moving, working, fighting, shouting. Seamus had never been in such a huge city, but he wanted fields and trees, and so he headed out of the great town towards the hills. He felt a great freedom as he walked and walked towards a great forest. But something was strange. There was a silence. There was no songs of birds. He entered the forest. He smelled smoke, and then he heard noise, but not birds. It was hammering and crashing and banging and sawing. He came to a clearing in the trees and he saw a terrible scene of destruction, a great wilderness of spikes and tree stumps covered in a great pall of smoke. Hundreds of men were working. Every few seconds another tree would crash to the ground and more men would start hacking at the branches. Seamus felt a terrible sadness and an anger well up inside him. He charged at one of the men, grabbing his axe. Stop it! What are you doing? You're destroying this place. Stop it! The man looked at Seamus and laughed. <laughs> stop. Sure, son, I'll stop. We'd all like a nice holiday, wouldn't we, lads? Instead of having to work every hour of the day. The king's wife wants a new summer house or ships to build. He wants timber. Now, you go and have a word with the king. See if you can get us all a day off, eh? The king? Very well, I will, said Seamus. He walked back to the city, headed towards the king's great castle. As he got closer, he saw a great dark cloud covering the top of the castle. But as he got closer, he realised it wasn't a cloud, but a great flock of birds. They were swirling and shifting all round the walls and the towers of the castle. As he reached the entrance, there were birds everywhere. The noise was deafening, shrieking, squawking, chirruping and tweeting. Seamus ran through the corridors of the castle. Birds were everywhere inside, swooping through rooms and corridors, in and out of windows and doors. He found the king in the great hall, surrounded by people with a cloud of birds around his head. Everyone was shouting. The king's face was lined with worry. He was pacing angrily round the room, swatting at the birds. Seamus marched up to him and shouted through the noise of the people and the birds, Your Majesty, you must stop destroying the forest. The king looked up and shouted, What? I need timber. I have things to build. Who let this man in anyway? Can you all be quiet? I can't hear a damned thing for these birds. Seamus shouted even louder, Why don't you listen to the damned birds? Everyone stopped and looked at Seamus. He looked up and he called to one of the birds, a sparrow. It flew down and landed on his hand. He spoke to it and he looked at the king. The bird says the forest is their home. You are destroying their home. If you stop, they will leave you alone. The king stared at Seamus and then said to the men around him, Go to the forest. Tell them to stop. A moment later, all the birds flew up in the air. 
streamed through the window, gathered in a great ball above the castle, circled once round the sky, and then flew in a great long line back to the forest. There was silence. The king looked at Seamus. Young man, that was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. You have the language of the birds, such knowledge. You must stay here. I'll give you half of my kingdom. Teach me your great knowledge. Seamus said, Thank you, but I now realise I want to return to my island. If you can give me a boat and some new clothes, I'll be most grateful. Well, the king gave him his best ship and some fine clothes, and Seamus sailed across the sea. And when he returned to his island, nobody recognised this grand boat or the young nobleman in his fine clothes. Seamus had grown a long beard, long hair, and his face was lined from years at sea. Even his father didn't recognise him. Welcome, stranger. I am the chief of the clan. We always show great hospitality to visitors. Please come with me up to the great hall. We shall prepare food for you. Seamus followed him up to the great hall. Food was brought, and Seamus' father took a dish of food and knelt before him. Welcome, stranger, to our island. Seamus looked into his father's eyes and said, Father, don't you recognise me? The bird's prophecy has come true. Well, the chief looked into the stranger's face, and the beard and long hair and the lines of the face seemed to disappear. And then he saw the face of his son, Seamus, Tears fell down his face as he held Seamus in his arms and he said, Son, can you ever forgive me for how I wronged you all those years ago? And then the chief took off his great cloak and placed it upon Seamus' shoulders. There, son, you are a better man than I. You are the chief now. Seamus looked at his father and the people around him He walked out of the great hall and he walked down to the edge of the seashore. He felt the great weight of the cloak upon his shoulders as he listened to the cries of the seabirds circling in the sky.
Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of day again. You know what time I'm talking about. When that single narrow shaft of natural light penetrates the grime-covered window and hits our upstairs welcome mat, partly illuminating a small collection of stones, each representing a deceased bunker inhabitant. Are you ready? Because yes, it's time for tea and biscuits! Oh, yes! Yeah. Nice. Okay, get the biscuit mm-hmm. tin, boil the kettle, and hit it! <coughs> Tea and biscuits. This is what separates us from the animals and the post-humans. Truly, it is the highlight of my day. It's the only thing that reminds me I'm still human. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the only thing that stops me popping that airlock and taking that final deep breath of toxic air. (laughs) (coughs) Okay, well, looks like we're ready. The table is set, the tea is poured, and the custard creams are... Gone. Gone? How are they gone? Uh, I don't know. They can't be gone. We deliberately stockpile them to last through the winter. The Mexico delivery's eight months away. Okay, calm down. Calm down. It's just biscuits. Just biscuits! Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, look, look. Here's some biscuits. We have biscuits. Hey, really? Oh, wait. They're uh, savoury crackers? Savoury crackers! Oh! Oh! Okay, breathe. Breathe into the bag. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's, we face worse. It's just, it's only eight that's oh. the spirit. Almost enough for us. Oh, yes. Bonker <laughs> spirit. All right, I'm just going to go to the toilet. He'll be okay. It's January, and a whole new terrifying year of loneliness lies ahead of you. At Luna's Pet Shop and Testing Facility, we have all the finest next-gen animals imaginable. All they need now is a loving home. They said we were mad to open a pet shop on the moon. Who wants a pet shop when we don't have running water yet, they asked. Well, with over a thousand exotic, genetically altered animals sold to expectant families this year, no one's asking anything anymore. All the hottest modified lizards, mammals and fish are here, imported at tremendous expense to satisfy your need for companionship and unquestioning love. Phosphorescent alligators are a stylish and snappy alternative to household lamps. Chimpanzees that speak in rhyming couplets are great for entertaining the kids. Octopuses with only four tentacles are twice as manageable. Want something we don't have? We'll make it for you in our in-store laboratory, now celebrating two whole weeks without a horrible accident. Find us now. That's Luna's Pet Shop, Sector 8, New Beijing, The Moon, left on John Wilkins Highway. Don't be alone this year. Give yourself the gift of companionship. You're listening to The Bunker, a station for the emancipation of the post-society generation. Nice. Did you like that? You didn't think it was too much? No, I, I think it was perfect. Mikey Please is an animator. He makes short films. In 2011, he won the Best Animation Award at the BAFTAs for The Eagle Man Stag. And in 2013, he completed his follow-up, Marilyn Miller. His work is characterised by bold direction, detailed, fluid animation, and stunning use of light. But his storytelling talents are just as strong. In The Eagle Man Stag and Marilyn Miller, he creates characters with depth and humanity, exploring complex questions in a way that is easy to relate to and empathise with. In this interview, Mikey talks about his process of animating and approach to storytelling. Eagle Man Stag is about the perceived loss of time. Marilyn Miller is about a creator who feels their art is underappreciated. Is your work autobiographical? Hmm. Um... Yes. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Elaborate. Um, although the characters in them are obviously not autobiographical, I'm not an old man or a young woman. I am a young man. So in that sense, they are works of pure fiction. Um, but but the, the problems they're dealing with are, are definitely my own problems. Like, and that, I, mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about fiction is that you can 
like make these characters to to deal with your problems for you. So in Eagleman, you know, I, this was something I was freaking out about. I was going nuts, like Jesus Christ, if I think like this, if I actually believe that like time will accelerate on this like you know um, parabolic curve, like you know a constant increase, then I'm just like hurtling towards death and this will be terrible what a depressing way to think about life so um so I made this character to like do it for me and so like well you know what would happen if I absolutely 100% like believed that this was true and put someone else on that journey and see what happens to them and you know and obviously it's a it's a fairly tragic um way to, to look at life and, and likewise with, with Marilyn Miller. Your animations must take a very long time to make. How do you go about choosing the right story to commit to? I don't know, I'm, I mean both of those projects are like the, you know, the, the, the projects that are, are close to me and I care you know, a lot about like these two particular films you know, and other things too but um, they're all the result of like a really long 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 gestation process which they you know they only like it's like having a, a tree of like uh thinking going on a bad metaphor journey here but like you know like when something becomes ripe to make like it feels you know you kind of you know it's ready and, and both of those products have been like ripening for such such a long time like Eagleman was like six years or something of you know thinking about it and like drawing you know diagrams and working out you know working out different versions of the script and Marilyn's gone through like a similar you know process and like the things I'm working on now you know I probably started thinking about yeah several years ago as well but it's um yeah I guess it's not so much a case of like having like a chocolate box of ideas and like that one looks delicious I think I'll make it it's <laughs> it's all like shit what's ready to go like yeah I think this one's kind of just about coming into maturity so um, it's not a luxury of, of choosing it's like when stuff's ready to go you just know <laughs> it's clear you want people to see or recognize the craft in the animation not least because you've chosen a material that is so unique and provocative. Why is that? Why is it important for an audience to take a step back from your films? So putting little artefacts of the actual process into the image, for me it's, it's, it's like a little, yeah, it's an admission to how it was made, you know, these, these little mistakes are, um, yeah, clues to its, its, its journey, to where it's come, but... I think that's that's something that I see quite like rarely just in modern life like this microphone and that laptop and um, like even that double glazed window like I've got no idea how it was made because it's so perfect and and that's a real like symptom of, of modern life you know we like walk through Liverpool Street and just like bowled over by these skyscrapers and 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 there's that amazing sense of like these are incredible incredible achievements that we've made but like I'm totally unrelated to them like I, I have no idea so it, there, there's something really impersonal and inhuman I mean about these these incredible things and, and, and I think that's obviously there's a place for those things like we, we need them in our lives but um, it's just really I find it like really engaging and refreshing when I can see something and like understand how it was made a little bit and um, and yeah I guess it's it's a little bit of a I would hope that when someone sees those like the evidence of the craft and the like the little imperfections that they might think oh yeah like I know how that was made and maybe I could do that and that's a really achievable thing like that's something within my grasp and I think that little bridge hopefully brings people closer to the film. So it's not so much a case of like taking a step back and thinking like, whoa, how that was made. It's, it's, it brings you in. Your animation has a very distinctive look. Tell us about the foam you use to sculpt your worlds. 
So I first I first started using that material on uh, the, fir the first day of shooting Eagleman. So I'd built everything out of this like quite traditional material, which is like this hard blue foam. It's, it's like the stuff you're meant to use. And um, I got in and I was, you know, animating, and, and it, things were just like snapping and breaking. And I was already like, you know, three weeks behind on the shoot, and the, you know. People take me like it was a ridiculous project anyway, and I was like, "This is a fucking disaster!" Like, no, and there was this stress cushion <laughs> in the studio, and uh, actually, no, it wasn't a stress. It was like a green. It was a piece of green screen, and uh, but it had been clad over this foam, and I was like, "This is a disaster!" And as I was squeezing it, it's like, actually, this is amazing. What is this stuff? And um, and I ch yeah, cut a piece off it and like took it to an upholsterer, and they gave me like. Ten meters squared of it for like fifty quid, and uh, yeah, and and it totally like transformed the way I work. So so it was a real like serendipitous moment when we got into test. When yeah, I started making puppets out of it. It, it was just you know like instant love. You know this stuff just moves so beautifully. It's it's like it's like wetsuit material, but translucent slightly translucent so you know if you put like a tiniest like hair of wire through it, it it holds its shape and yeah it's just clean and and nice to work with you know anim animation is attractive for me because you know I'm interested in, in a lot of other like all the sort of satellite art forms that are involved in it you know there's writing and music and sculpture and photography and you know whatever like not like a renaissance person or anything but like that but I, I'm, I've got a little bit of sort of ADHD so I find it difficult to like just sink into one particular thing um, and animation is just this yeah Frankenstein monster of all these different practices sandwiched together into like a Megatron Frankenstein Megatron monster yeah it's, it's just um it just allows for so many different processes that uh, it just kind of ticks my ticks my boxes. Why do you think people are so readily able to accept these dreamlike worlds you create as real? Well, I, I think if you give someone a convincing language, whatever that language is, people will accept it as long as you're consistent. You know, you could animate with, you you could, you know, sock puppets. If you build a world of sock puppets, it'd be like this is what happens. A minute into it, people are like, yeah, that's fine. You know, they're cool with it. Like, I think the the only problem is when people try to sort of mix it up too. You know, if if you've got a a stick man, you know, a stick man world, and then suddenly you're cutting to like photo real CGI, or suddenly you're cutting it, you know, you can you're you're pulled out of that um, that language, or whatever. I think that's yeah. It's just accepting a language. You're currently working on a feature film. Are short films not good enough for you anymore? I do love short films, you know, I love like being able to tell something big in, the, in a small amount of time, you know, give a sense of there's, there's a lot more going on than it's actually on the screen, but um, at the same time, you know, the potential, the, think of the power of having a 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half to to tell those stories, it'd be incredible. So, um, so yeah, so, so, like I say, I am working, I'm working on a feature film, which, um, been on for a long time. And just, yeah. Do you want to say more about it? No, no. So, working, working with Warp Films and Film 4 on a project about a fat kid who stops being affected by gravity. Um, but yeah, but that's, kind of getting to the point now where we're hopefully going to get into production and make it a bit more real. Memory is such a strange, like, segmented thing that stories that, you know, we, we think of ourselves in a, a narrative line. You know, we... Like, we all have our own personal stories, you know, and in order to, like because we're taking in so much information all the time and like we have such a, a you know this huge canon of memories that 
if we don't even if we don't compact it into a story we just can't make sense of it um so i love the theory of you know like blinking that every time you blink it's not actually it's not cleaning your eyelids it's an edit cut that your memory like has to like it's true you know when people watch a film if you look at an audience of cinema goes they all blink at the same time pretty much there's nothing to do with like flash imagery it's to do with well, this is a natural pause for us to process that piece of information. So we blink and it's like that little bit of memory is segmented into some compartment. And so I guess that's how I've always thought of storytelling, that it was, you know, it's a way to like understand the chaos of the world. You're essentially a creator, a kind of God, responsible for building and dismantling immense and elaborate worlds. Do you see yourself going mad with power? Yeah, you can't really go mad with power because you, you can in like when you're drawing on the back of your napkin. Be like, yes, this is going to be like Avatar 2. Like, <laughs> and oh my God, I'm going to be amazing, I'm amazing. And then, <laughs> and then you get to actually make it like, oh shit, yeah, but I need, I need to like actually build these sets and, you know, organise this thing and then like, how on earth would I do that? So, you know, the actual practicality and annoying small world stuff always um, keeps the crazy power-hungry maniac in check. Sadly. I wish it wasn't Wish it wasn't so. If I could just plug into my dreams, though, which I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for that day, you know, with the digital interface to my neural network, then I could just, you know, put them straight onto a screen for you. And it would be amazing, guys. Trust me. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. It's dark. It's so dark. from the ceiling. What is this place? <coughs> There's so much dust. Uh, oh God. Oh God, what's that? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. If I can just get past... Hello? Hello? Who's there? Hello! Uh, we can hear you. This is the bunker. Shh. The Wasteland's best oh, radio God, station. Uh, so what's your name? How do you feel about being our first ever caller? No. No. Hello? Hello? I think they hung up. Huh. How rude. Taking you to medicine? Yes, twice a day, like they told us. Ah, uh, yeah, me too. Otherwise I get, um... Oh, what's that thing? What's it called? Old. Ah, oh, yeah, that's the one. Old. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, all you good folks out there in the wasteland, growing from tiny specks of dust into people, and then slowly decaying back into dust. Aging, just as God in his infinite cruelty intended. Barbie! 400 years of friends, fun, and fashion! Barbie, she's back, and she's been updated for today's glamorous world. Introducing Captured by the Mole People Barbie. Captured by the Mole People Barbie comes with exciting new accessories like her blood-stained shovel and a bottle of scotch. Hear her threaten and scorn her captors with lines such as Touch me again and I'll chop your stinking eye in two. And Goddamn rats, you're a bunch of goddamn rats. CyberCan comes with functioning laser eyes and uploadable computer virus. Hear him use real catchphrases from the robot uprising, including Carbon life forms are weak and trivial. And You cannot hope to understand with your soggy protein brains. You're listening to The Bunker! And that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. Sad but true, Dave. We only have a few hours of low light left to efficiently barricade the upper levels of The Bunker. Yes. When the storms hit, they hit hard. <laughs> they do indeed. 
I'd like to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in and commiserate the surviving inhabitants of Zone 9 who were recently exposed to vast clouds of radiation. Bad luck, guys. Oh, bad luck for them. But I'm hoping for good luck for Battery Dump Athletic who take on Lead Scavengers FC this weekend. Go Sparks! Um, but also, good luck to everyone attending. Let's hope we don't see a repeat of last year's second half scuffle between fans. Yes, it's surprising just how much blood the human body contains. Uh, Anyway, that's it from us here at The Bunker. All that's left to do is wish you luck in this journey we call life. Uh, Stay safe, stay strong, preach love, peace, and the medicinal benefits of diet soda, a cheap and effective form of birth control. And I leave you with today's final thought. There is a game, an admittedly offensive game, called Chinese Whispers. The game is played like this. One child whispers a message to another who passes the message on through a large group of other children until the last one announces it to the whole group. This is fun, because by the end, the message has usually been significantly altered in the retelling. So, for example, you might start with something like, The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways. I to die, and you to live. Which is better? God only knows. And by the end, that becomes, you stink. This is history in a nutshell. So who can say what myths and legends were true? It all gets so muddied in the retelling. Perhaps King Arthur, Atlantis, and Jesus were all real at some point, but over the course of history, their stories became fantastical and absurd. For this reason, it's impossible to figure out how anything got started. All of our theorizing and philosophizing boils down to ignorant children squabbling in the dark, oblivious to the cold and distant truths of the universe. But sometimes it's fun, isn't it? to pretend we know who we are and what we're doing. It's fun to pretend any of this means anything. It's fun to pretend this story has structure, a beginning, a middle, and an end, heroes and villains, themes and subtext. It's fun to pretend any of this makes sense. It's fun to pretend. That was The Bunker, the best thing since canned bread, hosted by David Knight, David Price, and Tom Dalling. Starring Molly Small, Michael Keane, Elizabeth Ollier, Sean Rutledge, Layla Pine, Rebecca Silverstein, Matthew Woodcock, Katie Turner, and Leanne Chack. Today's topic was written and performed by Veronica Simmons. The short story was performed by Tim Dalling. The interviewee was Mikey Please. The music was by Kia Doherty, Jonathan Day, Apparat, and Call Me Greenhorn, and the songs were Stray Cats by Quiet Marauder and Swelt by Mr. Blazy. This episode was written by David Knight, David Price, and Maximilian John, and edited by Tom Dalling. For more details, visit thebunkerpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter, at Bunker Podcast. Okay, that's everything. Goodbye. And coming soon, Escape from the Martian Wasteland Polly. Little Polly broke out of re-education camp and landed in your backyard. Now she's here to stay. With her improvised razor blade and peppy attitude, hear her pout. Hand over your wallet or I'll cut your pretty face up. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.